0: Go, 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 how it is. This is Alex Marienthal, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. We get lucky a lot in this game. It's up to you whether you want to play that side of the lottery or not. <laughs> this is how we make a mistake. We're either underestimating the hazard or overestimating our ability to deal with it.
1: You are tuned in to episode 420 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, it's July 1st. Welcome back, everybody. The summer solstice has come and gone, meaning... The days are getting shorter, the nights are getting longer, and winter is coming. And man, I always love that feeling when winter's around the corner. I know we've got a few more months of this summer shenanigans, but um, winter is coming. So I know that I'm excited, I'm sure you are as well. We've got a few more podcast episodes in season four before we take the rest of the summer off and continue to gather content for season five which will be launching um october 1st so until then while you're you're out there battling the heat of summer maybe you're out there riding your ride on lawnmower mowing the lawn drinking a cold 10 barrel brew hopefully the avalanche hour podcast can help you get through those long hot summer days as always a big shout out to the sponsors of the show tas by mnd jay and the crew over there have had my back since day one of this venture and can't thank you enough andy and the crew at 10 barrel up the road thank you guys so much for your continued support i know times are tough and hopefully uh hopefully that support will keep on coming in the future and not to forget our good friends at InterWest Insurance based out of Chico, California. Uh, contact those guys for any of your insurance needs. They can help you out. On today's episode, we highlight an interview with Alex Marienthal. Alex is a forecaster for the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center out of Bozeman, Montana. Um, and he has some background in in Bozeman, particularly. He grew up in in the front range of Colorado and has had an interest in snow and skiing playing in the snow since he was a, a very young lad and then upon moving to Bozeman to start his undergraduate degree quickly got involved in the snow science program at MSU he finished his undergrad degree and then went on to do some patrolling at Bridger Bowl and then start his graduate degree program at MSU in the Earth Sciences Snow Science Program. So if you've been tracking along the last few episodes, you know that we've we've highlighted some of the MSU professors out there that have, have a bit to do with the Snow Science Program, both in the Civil Engineering Department and the Earth Sciences Department. And these next couple episodes are going to highlight people that have been in those programs. And so Alex is... to talk a bit about um, his research in his graduate program concerning um, some ways we might be able to better forecast for deep slab instabilities so definitely a tricky avalanche problem to forecast for um, as alex will attest to through his through his some of his research as well as his work as a forecaster Um, we dive into again, some of his research, but also some of the work that he's been doing as a forecaster for the Forest Service Avalanche Center out of Bozeman. Um, And he he tells a couple great stories of of lessons learned along the way. So without further ado, here we go with Alex Marienthal. Welcome to the show, Alex. It's good to meet you finally. This is actually your second time on the show for, for getting technical here. I think you... You gave us a season summary from one of my first episodes, and so it's good to meet you in person.:
0: Yeah, great to meet you too, been listening up on recent episodes, and it's all been pretty good content, so thanks
1: awesome. nice to be here
0: and help out. Cool. Well, why don't you
1: give us a rundown of who Alex is? What's your history, <clears throat> where are you from, um, past and current roles within the snow and avalanche arena?
0: Yeah, well, I grew up in Colorado on the Front Range uh, in a little town called Gold Hill, just outside of Boulder, and between there and Boulder, went to school. Um, Skiing was kind of part of the elementary school curriculum, and being in the mountains at 8,000 feet, I was always super excited for the first snow and to get out and go sledding and build snowmen, and pretty much all winter long was, yeah, it was definitely my favorite season growing up, so that's kind of where I gained that love for snow, Um, and My first backcountry experiences started later in high school. Uh, My dad would take me on hut trips out in Colorado in the 10th Mountain huts and started giving me that taste for being out of bounds and quiet and breaking trail and making fresh tracks wherever you want. Um, Yeah, and then looking at colleges, I found there was a snow science program, and without that, I probably wouldn't have even gone to college. (laughs) I think like a lot of folks, it was like, oh, it sounds like skiing <laughs> so so decided I'd give college a shot and uh, all said and done it worked out for the better. I stuck with it for almost 10 years and got a master's degree after my undergrad here at MSU and uh, continued to things continued to go my way I got into patrolling at Bridger Bowl for a few years was super fortunate to have that opportunity a lot of people a lot of people want to work up there and uh, for good reason it's an amazing crew there with 40 years of many many people have 40 years of experience and knowledge there to pass along and uh, and it's just a really cool mountain gets you great experience in avalanche terrain Um, along with that I was started teaching classes for the friends of the avalanche center and eventually became their education coordinator and then kind of through that and ski patrolling and just backcountry skiing here a bunch, submitting ops to the Avalanche Center, was able to get my foot in the door there and eventually uh, become a forecaster with the GNFAC, which is also a super fortunate place to be with some great, great co-workers. And as we were saying before the interview, the community here in Bozeman is just chock full of from super experienced practitioners to professors who've been doing it for, who knows, hundreds of years. <laughs> <laughs> um, And they all just work together really well and and bring a lot to the snow science community. So
1: it's it's cool to be a part of that. Well, it certainly seems like Bozeman is an epicenter of the merging of theory and practice within avalanche science and avalanche work. Um, So you did your undergraduate at MSU in the snow science program as well. Was that what
0: your degree was in? Yeah, my undergraduate Mm -hmm. work was in the snow science program out of the earth science department. Um, They have two tracks at MSU through engineering or through earth sciences, which Sure, a lot of base commonalities, but then towards the upper level work, you kind of branch out into engineering becomes a little more lab-based or maybe towards civil engineering and infrastructure design or protection, and then earth science definitely gets more towards anything from forecasting and outdoor field work to hydrology or glaciology. Mm -hmm. A lot of people end up, a lot of people in that undergrad discipline branch out towards hydrology or climate or glaciology as well. Gotcha. And so was that a, was
1: that kind of a smooth transition into the graduate program for you? And and was that right away, right after your undergraduate degree, or did you take some time? Is that when you were patrolling? Um,
0: yeah. So when I finished my undergrad degree, I started volunteer patrolling at Bridger and took about a year and a half off then. And during that time applied to grad school and, uh, it was pretty smooth getting into that and it was a good compliment to being patrolling at the same time to be able to apply some of that practice to coming up with some research questions that were
1: relevant yeah so alex i'm hoping to dig into some of your graduate degree research that you did at msu um, i think anyone would agree that more aids to help forecasting deep persistent slab avalanches is, is welcome in anybody's toolbox Um, And that's kind of what some of your graduate research, as I understand it, um, was about. So talk about some of the work
0: that you did, some of the research that went on there. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about some of the deep slab work. Um, I guess I'd have to start with a disclaimer that, unfortunately, I didn't come up with any silver bullets for (laughs) deep slab forecasting or prediction. Um, And I think in terms of managing that problem, we're still kind of stuck with that conservative decision making and terrain selection some winters you're just not going to get into those bigger lines until spring or or the next winter Um, especially if you're in a more continental snowpack where you're dealing with that all the time and we just got to practice (laughs) self-discipline which can be hard uh and that gets more into the human factor side of things so to back up to the research i did as a master's student um I was curious about deep slab avalanches and yeah, how we could better forecast those or predict them. And so I looked at uh, historical data from Bridger Bowl. They have a great data database going back to the late 60s. So I had about 40 years, 44 years, I think it ended up being of avalanche control result data and meteorological data. And so I went through that, I queried it, queried the avalanche data to look for events that appeared to be quote-unquote deep slabs, which I defined as any anything occurring after February 1st because that's kind of when these deep slab instabilities become that more difficult to forecast. And of course, there's that's not a set date or anything that can certainly become difficult to forecast in December. But for the purposes of research, I I chose that date to find anything after that date that was um, deeper than three feet or had some other evidence of failing on a deep, persistent weak layer. And I dug pretty deep into the avalanche and meteorological records to see if there was a weak layer that season. And if, uh, a bigger event was an anomaly to other events during that time, like if it, if there was a four foot deep avalanche and everything else was only like one or two feet during that morning, it probably wasn't a storm avalanche. And so there's, there's some subjectivity in choosing those events from all that historical data, but uh, I felt I got it narrowed down to a pretty good set of events. And then the main thing I I started with was looking at seasons that had deep slabs and seasons that didn't have deep slabs and comparing early season weather uh, between seasons that had deep slabs and seasons that didn't. So kind of had a set of about, I think it was 20 seasons, with and 24 seasons without deep slabs and then so i generated these early season weather summaries for those seasons so what was the total or average snow water equivalent through november december and january um, or average temperatures over those months uh, total snowfall or average snow depth um, just all these kind of seasonal parameters that i could then compare between seasons that didn't didn't have deep slabs uh so once i generated meteorological variables i ran a bunch of statistics to a few different models to see what parameters were more associated with seasons that had deep slabs to see if there was like you know was it seasons with less snow or seasons with colder temperatures in november or probably both (laughs) Um, and we didn't find you know any silver bullets as I said before we weren't able our models weren't perfectly predicting seasons with deep slabs but they were able to to about 70 percent or so predict whether a season would have a deep slab problem or not Um, and so that's not great to like base your life on but that's about where most statistical avalanche forecasting models come out to not many have have been able to predict better than that whether you're just dealing with day-to-day avalanches or something bigger did your interest in this research uh, stem
1: from a specific event or had you just been, <clears throat> been ruminating on it while well, just
0: keep trolling it, Bridger? Yeah, I think my my interest stemmed from kind of some other research that had looked at this and it was clearly a, a problem that the research was interested in and people, you know, it's that high, low likelihood, high consequence problem and so... We'd ideally like to not worry about it, but if if we forget about it and it gets us, it's probably going to kill somebody or take out some houses or something. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, these are the th- this is the avalanche
1: problem that keeps me up at night, you know, and keeps us tiptoeing through the mountains when it's <laughs> when it's present or we think it might be
0: present, right? Yeah, yeah. So I kind of saw that with when I was patrolling at Bridger Bowl. We had a really bad season where we had this somewhat like this year where we got early season snow that was a couple feet deep and it got really cold, fasted it out. And then we started building the snowpack on top of that. And all season long patrol was just bombing it hard every day. Like it would barely snow and it was just shooting everything, making sure nothing was going to go deep. And, and I really saw them losing sleep over that. The snow safety team was, you know, never sleeping, just worried about it every day. Um, and then later that At the end of that season, we did end up having these historic wet slab avalanches that gouged out. They slid all the way to the base of the snowpack in the end of March after a couple days of above freezing temperatures. And then a big snowfall event at the end of this thaw, Mm -hmm. uh, which started as rain. So it was just this perfect storm of a, a poor snowpack structure, really weak, fasted snow at the ground under a couple, probably a meter of slab dense skier compacted slab um and then that thawed for the first time going isothermal in the spring didn't refreeze for a couple nights so it was weak all the way through the snowpack and then this little bit of snowfall heavy snow which started as rain on top of that was just enough weight to push that to huge avalanches that ran further than anyone has seen by far (laughs) (laughs) at bridger and Um, they were, they were skier and explosive triggered, but it was not very hard to trigger those slides. We didn't see any naturals that day, but, uh, but it was clearly just this perfect storm to create historic avalanches and a very unique event. So
1: at that time, my research
0: started to kind of, kind of focus on that kind of (laughs) problem. Right. I was going to say, especially
1: after you guys have been pounding it with explosives, Mm -hmm. you know, before you entered
0: this kind of wet slab regime, right? Right. So all season long, there had been a few small, isolated deep slabs here and there, but nothing huge Mm -hmm. just based on how broken up it had gotten from explosives and skier traffic. But um, obviously it wasn't enough to totally eliminate that weak layer. And I also recall that season... Digging lots of pits and getting unstable extended column test results that were just propagating all year long, no matter how deep that layer was. Like It was two meters deep, and maybe I didn't get to propagate on 30 hits, but if I removed a little bit of slab and hit it, it was just these clean sheer pops on top of that depth whore, and uh, even though we weren't triggering it with explosives or people were skiing on it and stuff, it was still there, and once it got that, that warmth was the perfect weak layer to propagate very far (laughs) well it it kind of just goes to show you that structure is king
1: right i mean if you have a weak snowpack structure there's the potential there no matter how many false stable or stable results you might be getting in a snowpack test or stability
0: test yeah absolutely yeah i think that's a lot of times the the danger drops to low after two weeks of no snow and you still have that structure and it's means that chance is still there and it's low because it's very very unlikely but it's up to you whether you want to play that side of the lottery or not (laughs) so that brings up a good point point as a as
1: writing a forecast or, or an advisory um you mentioned you know this this research work didn't give you any magic silver bullets but how does how do you go about conveying this message in a public advisory for kind of these high consequence,
0: low probability events, specifically deep persistence labs, I think it's a big challenge to convey these. Partly because the messaging becomes a little stale and preachy, and and uh, it's that type of it's usually that type of year where somebody like myself or the forecasters would just be ruling out a lot of stuff for the season. It's like, all right, we're not skiing most avalanche terrain. Until spring or until next year, until we go to a different snowpack. (laughs) Um, And it's really hard to, it's very difficult to push that message to people throughout the winter. I think everyone's kind of expecting, like, when's it going to be okay, and sometimes it's just not.
1: Something that I feel like is maybe helpful... Uh, at least in in an operational setting such as ski guiding is, and we were talking about this earlier, is a strategic mindset, right? And so Mm -hmm. um, do you ever think about pulling in kind of that strategic mindset into a public advisory or a public realm?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. Uh, The strategic mindsets, I think, are a great planning tool to help mitigate some of those human factors, especially during a bigger problem where you might have a a deep persistent weak layer where you need to really keep yourself in check and start in the morning and say, Hey, it's, it's status quo today or it's entrenchment. We've been dealing with this persistent weak layer all year and, and it's not going anywhere. Let's not, it might be low danger. It might be moderate going towards low and we're not going to find unstable test results, but we saw those three huge avalanches a month ago and, If we find the wrong spot on the slope, we could trigger one ourselves. So like let's just you know stick with our plan of low angle terrain for the day. Sure. Um Yeah, and in any avalanche problem situation, I think those mindsets would be a great planning tool Mm -hmm. um for for getting for framing the day, whether it's yeah, no matter what the mindset is. (laughs) Especially when those monsters are sleeping
1: in the basement as I like to call it yeah. some of that dormant basal facet
0: or depth or layers yeah yeah, and I really have thought and would like to work towards uh, working that mindset language uh, into public advisories a little more Cause I, and I've seen other forecast centers doing it here and there and I think mm-hmm. it makes sense and one nice thing about those mindsets is it's pretty plain English if you've it, if you just use one without the context, it still kind of makes sense. I'm like, hey, it's the beginning of the season. we got to go out and assess what the weak layers are and what the snowpack is. We're in an assessment mindset. Like, that makes sense, right? Yeah, I think probably to anybody, <laughs> no
1: matter your level of training. Alex, part of your work as an avalanche forecaster is, unfortunately, to complete accident investigations. While I'm sure it's kind of difficult emotionally, especially when there's a fatality, uh, this is vital to do to share these unfortunate lessons with the greater community. Um, so I'm wondering if you've noticed some trends or, um, kind of some overarching lessons learned from accident investigations that you've done or, or been witness to in, in this
0: region. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, uh, yeah it's the hardest part of the job, and at times what it, it can be discouraging, but ultimately it becomes encouraging to this is why we're doing this and uh it motivates us to continue to to save lives because it's so terrible for folks to have to go through losing somebody so one thing is I see a lot of fatalities, especially occurring during or after big storms when dangers is, is very elevated. And that kind of makes sense because that's when people want to get out and ride powder. And um, it's also kind of puzzling because that's when we're pushing the messaging, the hardest of, of caution. But of course that human nature comes in and, and uh, takes over and you know, we make a mistake. Part of that time is people uh, either underestimating the hazard or overestimating their ability to manage with the hazard, which is something we preach a lot in decision-making talks of this is how we make a mistake. We're either underestimating the hazard or overestimating our ability to deal with it, which I think is a good way to put it because sometimes people recognize it's high hazard. They say, oh, it's high. We know it's bad. We're just going to go out and sled around on the groom trails. But then they don't realize that those groom trails cross under avalanche paths. So that's kind of their inability to manage that hazard. Um, on the other side, you might just you might you might not recognize exactly how bad that hazard is, and you might think considerable is like, oh, we can we can avoid these slopes that have that weak layer, we can avoid the slopes that have the wind load, um, but maybe those slopes are everywhere, and you you think they're only specific or something. Then the other more basic mistake we see, unfortunately, in a lot of accidents, is underpreparedness. Either people not having the right rescue gear or not using it properly. It's it's kind of unbelievable, unfortunately, just because you know you and me were thinking like everyone should have a beacon, shovel, and probe, and a partner that knows how to use it. Uh, I can't remember how many snowmobile fatalities there were in the U.S. last year, but I think almost two thirds of them either didn't have a beacon or didn't their partner didn't have all the proper rescue gear or some sort of combo of that. And so it's just that basic education that could save a lot of lives in, in many situations. And there's been multiple, there's skiers alone who have died. There's skiers without beacons who have died. So it's not just sledders, it's both disciplines that these mistakes are made. And, you know, I know skiing alone is, is nice and enjoyable. I like to do it occasionally and a lot of people do, but that rescue year is not going to do you any good, right? So
1: You also mentioned that one of the trends you see is people not being able to really grapple with what it means to have considerable hazard or moderate hazard. And so what are some strategies that your forecast center are using to try and get that message across a little bit better? Because well, a lot of times people will just look at the colors, of the advisory and not read any text. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, especially if you're running out the door, you're late to meet your buddies, you just glance at the forecast and boom, maybe that's in the bottom line or maybe that's just in the color scheme of the hazard rating. But are there any ways as a forecaster that you're trying to get that message across super efficiently?
0: Yeah, I think, so one thing that comes to mind with that is the increase in social media use and we have just this will be my fifth season at the avalanche center and just since i started we have quadrupled our social media presence like we when i started four years ago we were just posting our advisory occasionally on facebook but now it's like every day we come back from the field we post our obs on facebook and instagram and then every morning the advisory goes out on facebook and instagram and twitter and the caption there is a little bottom line hopefully is telling you what that main hazard is and uh it might say the danger but it's usually kind of focused more on what the weather did and what you're going to be dealing with so if if someone's only looking at their phone for 10 seconds before they put their boots on hopefully they get that key piece of information or see that photo of the avalanche that happened yesterday and um there's just yeah a lot more than just that that forecast which creates a big challenge too because it's, it's a lot more work for us, but we know it's worth it and where we need to be putting our efforts. Uh, but it's so dynamic that, uh, yeah, it's hard to keep on it, uh, keep up and you know, know whether you're hitting people at the right time in the right place or not. It's almost kind of a toss up <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and just trying to stay on top of it and do our best. Yeah, I've, I've always thought that you guys do a great job with
1: um, your um, snow pit videos um, being pretty pretty short and to the point but pretty impactful I think with with some really good information there and so maybe this is a good time to kind of plug your socials um you guys are at MT Avalanche yep
0: okay
1: anything else uh
0: friends of the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center on Facebook uh Avalanche guys for YouTube and Twitter Mm mm-hmm um yeah, and if you want to contact, uh, contact us, there's links on our website and mtavalanche at gmail for submitting obs or asking questions. Cool. So, Alex, you would mentioned before about, you know, going out
1: into the backcountry solo and, you know, maybe creating some margin for doing that. I've got a question from a listener here. Chris Price asks you, do you have any tips for
0: skiing alone in the backcountry? That is a good question. It's a tricky one since uh, we always recommend to have a partner. And, you know, as I mentioned, that's the only way that rescue gear is really going to save your life. Otherwise, it's a body recovery. So skiing alone, you just you have to be super cognizant that you're alone and you're basically skiing without rescue gear. And, you know, if I'm ever skiing alone, it's avoid avalanche terrain or stick to very simple terrain that I'm 99 0.9% 0.9% confident it's stable. And, uh, I don't know if that's ever really, if that's a realistic number, <laughs> but there's been times where I've tricked myself into thinking it's nine that I'm that sure. Um, so yeah, being overly cautious and, and maybe starting with that planning set with your mindsets of where am I at today? And, I think one tricky thing is I've I've also said like why would why would I ski this with a partner and not by myself? Like just because this guy's sitting here with rescue gear, that's that's not really a good reason to ski something. So I also kind of feel like if you're willing to ski something with your buddy standing there watching you, you should you should be willing to do it without that backup if you're you should be that confident in the snowpack because we know that People die without, you know, even with the proper rescue gear and partners there. So, Mm -hmm. so that's a little tricky. Uh, One really good strategy, kind of the planning, and it's it's really the last minute planning that we talk about a lot. Whether you're alone or with somebody, is doing the pre-mortem of what's the what's the report going to say when if if this thing slides like what are the forecasters going to write? Are they going to write? he was out there alone no rescue gear didn't read the advisory you know skied into a terrain trap or is it going to be like oh you know he had a partner he had the gear he was doing everything right they they had a plan to avoid these slopes but you know they had to they just made a, a poor judgment and had to take a shortcut to get back to the car early and yeah that's that's decision-making, that's the human factor. We're not always thinking clearly, especially in fast-paced extreme environments. Mm -hmm. So I I try to ask myself that a lot, especially if I'm skiing alone, and it it becomes pretty stressful when you're skiing alone, almost to the point where I overthink it so much that I just stay in bounds. It's like, I'm alone today, I guess I'm staying in bounds. Like, if I'm not so confident that I can go out and ski around in the backcountry by myself, or, or ski an avalanche train by myself, then it, it, that overthinking often pushes me back to to that low angle pow and, and not towards the that slope that the two people just center punched and made it look
1: real good. <laughs> and that's not to say that there aren't days when, when it's totally appropriate to be out there by yourself. I think what kind of what you're getting at, or what I'm hearing you say, is that you just need to build in a greater margin of safety right but I also like the point that you brought up of, of why should I ski this with a buddy who could dig me out if I think it's gonna avalanche right mm-hmm. and so it's kind of the same thing like you could maybe stand at the top of every slope and be like hey do I feel comfortable taking my beacon off right now you know like I mean that's another way to think of it it's like mm-hmm. you have a partner you have a beacon you have this rescue gear like, how confident am I in the stability of the snowpack and the ability or
0: non-ability of this slope to slide? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And it, it makes it a little tricky in the mind because when you really think about it, we're rarely that confident unless it's a spring yeah. refreeze or something. Sure. Um, and that's a lot of times when I'm alone in avalanche train it's a spring refreeze. Mm-hmm. Like, it's rare It's rare that I'm alone in complex avalanche train or any avalanche train in the middle of winter like yeah I, I ski alone in in winter but it's kind of the same line over and over again it's just to either because I don't have a partner because I want to get out alone for a little bit and just have small objectives and um, one thing with partners is not only is they're there for a rescue but they're there to bounce ideas off of and kind of double check and it can go either way you can have a partner who is always pushing you towards something that's a little too gung-ho and might not be critically thinking and playing devil's advocate, or you can have a good partner who plays devil's advocate a lot and says, says, I don't feel good about this. Or are you sure like those stable results are enough for us to keep going? Or just yeah, I, I think we've with a handful of solo accidents and fatalities over the last few years, that's a big thing that's come up in conversation is like their partner might have been there to rescue them, but they also might have been there to talk them out of it. Mm. That's a really good point. And something that
1: was brought up in a previous interview that I did last week, talking about your personal disaster flags, which I believe Ian McCammon kind of came up with that term. Um, but talking about one of the, your personal disaster flags, may be skiing with somebody that has the same mindset as you, kind of the same goal-driven mindset. So that brings into into the forefront of my mind the the benefit of dissent amongst partners, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they're just challenging you to be devil's advocate, it's not because they're <laughs> looking for an argument, right? It's it's
0: because they're looking for all angles of the situation, really. Yeah, I think that's a really good point of having a good partner who's going to play devil's advocate for you and and check your decisions and um it's just it's important to have a good partner who's matched well with your objectives and your mindset, I think. That's maybe one reason why I might ski alone sometimes is cuz I'd rather be by myself. I trust my own decisions rather than the person who is my option as a partner for that day mm-hmm. who's like they they say, "Hey, I want to go ski." saddle peak. And am like, I just want to ski some, some low angle powder or something. And it's like, if they're like, no, I think it's good to go today. And you, you don't feel good about it, then let them go by themselves, I guess, or let them find somebody else. Um, don't, yeah, if your partner's not matched with, with you, that's something to be super cautious of. And especially in the backcountry community where we can get that human factor of a, a acceptance or commitment or absolutely
1: and such a it's such an interesting thing socially too like I I think a lot of times it's it's one of the things that we can control is who we're out there with right we can't control what's going on the snowpack or the weather we can obviously control what terrain we're in we can also determine who we're out there with and I think a lot of times people end up skiing with other people because they don't want to hurt some feelings right and and it's not worth gambling your life on somebody else's hurt feelings because you don't want to ski with them. Mm -hmm. You know, like I certainly have people that are great friends, but sorry, like I'm not going to ski with them because I don't like how they make decisions. And, and, and I'm afraid that they're going to make a decision for me. Right. Um, subliminally Mm -hmm. perhaps. So I think it's, I think it's kind of an interesting thing and I think people should see that as, as a choice they can make and a way to travel safer in the backcountry just like you're saying
0: yeah I think choosing your partner is a big part of your safe planning and yeah anticipating how that dynamic's going to go are you going to be able to speak up when they want to keep pushing further if not then maybe don't even start if if so then that's fine and um, that's a, a very valuable skill being able to speak up at the right time no matter who your partner is I've had I've had that partner who we're standing looking at a nice, steep face to ski. And I'm like, all right, let's go up and dig a pit up there, check it out. Like, I feel good. Where, we at, where we're at now, I feel good, like, continuing to that objective. But I still want to make that assessment at the top. And they are like, no, if we go up there, like, why would we come back down the ridge line and the safe route? And it's like, well, because what if we see something that we don't like? And it's like, no, if we go up there, we're skiing that. I was like, all right, let's just ski from here. I like just called it there because it was, I mean, that was almost obvious, but it could be easily overlooked, but it was like right there. It was already committed and, and we, I wasn't ready to commit yet. So we just didn't even get the chance to continue that assessment. Right. That's
1: a good example. Alex, I was wondering if you could recount a story of a close call or an instant or a mistake, maybe a significant learning moment in your career. <clears throat>
0: Yeah, so close call or mistake, there's been many. Um, fortunately, no really bad outcomes. I've had maybe one ride that I was injured in and then a few kind of close catch, catch and release <laughs> where I was able to get off the slabs while patrolling or something. Uh, but some of my bigger learning experiences actually come from close calls where nothing really went wrong. Um, where we come home at the end of the day, just totally fine. Maybe didn't trigger an avalanche, but I've looked back and been like, "Was I really in the right spot at the right time?" Uh, and one of those was uh, it, it goes back to that ability to manage that hazard. To reckon, uh, either we're underestimating the hazard or overestimating our ability to manage the hazard, and. A few seasons ago, we had the only extreme danger issue that the GNFAC's ever issued down in Cook City. It had been 11 days of heavy snowfall. Basically, we got 11 inches of snow water equivalent over 11 days, and I was down there towards the end of that storm, checking out the snowpack. Um, we went up one day and... Uh, yeah it was just blowing sixty miles an hour, still snowing hard. it had been it was like day eight of this storm. and when you're out trying to assess the stability and that there's not a whole lot to look for. it's just it's heavy snowfall. it's pushing towards the breaking point. And we had a fairly strong snowpack that season down there. and so during the storm we saw a few avalanches at the beginning of it and then didn't really see a whole lot. and so we were thinking like the snowpack's pretty strong. it's holding this it's holding this load. that's pretty good. I mean, I dug a pit. it was like, six feet of new snow you can't really do a stability test it's not going to tell you anything anyway so we we're just kind of showing videos of like how much snow is out here um but we were feeling pretty good that the snowpack was holding up and then i i called back to the office and talked to doug chabot the director and then carl berkland who's director of the national avalanche center and they were there and they're like hey we were just talking and and we just got to remember that everything has a breaking point and uh this is still going it's been high danger for a few days and now i think like this is we need to push it to extreme and so the next day we issued an extreme danger for down there which is basically stay home <laughs> stay on the couch like the, uh, the danger scale says avoid all avalanche terrain or something it's, but when when you go back to that what is our ability to manage the hazard managing extreme hazard is not really something i think we can do, uh, because avalanches are taking out acres of forest that like we saw it in Colorado last year. Like you could be miles down in dense forest and avalanches will come blowing through that. Um, but I went out that day with my partner, It's like, all right, we'll just buzz up this road just see if we see any avalanches near town. We were on snowmobiles um, and talked to Doug that morning and he, and he said, told him where I was going he's like hey be careful there's a path up there that I've seen go big before and hit that road and I was like oh yeah I know what you're talking about uh, we won't go quite that high up turns out I didn't I had a different path in mind than what he was talking about I was not familiar with the one that he had seen go huge so we go up to the end of this road where I thought was right before the the paths he had mentioned made a quick little video it's still snowing dangers extreme um, and we're starting to see some big avalanches. so we went back down that road and back home and then later that night or i guess it was the next day some folks sent us uh observations of that road being buried by 20 feet of debris uh, a couple hundred feet wide and the path that doug had mentioned had gone huge bigger it took out a bunch of bunch of trees the whole road was just buried in trees that summer I, I went back down there on this was in February when the extreme danger was February 10th or something and I went down in July and there was still like 10 feet of snow and trees just all over that road they were just starting to pluck it out with an excavator um, and so that to me is a close call I mean this path slid maybe hours after I crossed under it but it was like close enough that that I made that mistake of of I shouldn't have been there, and uh, um, that was my inability to properly manage the hazard. Like we recognize it's extreme, but having never seen extreme or been out in extreme in my life, I obviously have no frame of reference for what that really means. And <laughs> and when yeah when. Avalanches are possible that can create new paths. You're not really safe anywhere <laughs> other than sure. out of the mountains. So, so that was kind of a, that was a big eye opener in that, and uh, and also kind of gave me this tagline of let's be more cognizant of those times. Let's look back on every day that we're out and say like, hey, did we get lucky or did we really nail it today? Were we were we actually good? Um, because I think we get lucky a lot in this game like we know nine out of ten times you could ski something that's unstable and get away with it and that's where people build this overconfidence in their decision making and thinking that we're really good at towing the line when when we're not Um, and the more we can recognize those times that we got lucky and nothing went wrong or even when things do go wrong we need to recognize that we got lucky and it could have been worse, but those times when we come back alive and nothing clearly went wrong, but maybe we, maybe we pushed it a little bit, we changed our decision to ski that steep line because we didn't get unstable test results, even though that morning we ruled out that terrain, I think we should say to ourselves and our partners, hey, we shouldn't have done that, and that's going to make us better in the future. Sure. This is certainly a theme that
1: keeps coming up with interview guests throughout at least this fall interview tour. But but pretty much the last few seasons of interviews with talented avalanche professionals is, is the need to debrief every day with your skiing or riding partners and to reflect on whether we did get lucky or did we make good decisions. And so I'm glad that you shared that story. Thanks for sharing that experience with us. Um, and I, I think the overarching lesson there is is one that's valuable for the community.
0: Kind of along that same line of looking back and saying, was I good or was I lucky? There was two separate field days, one in the la- one of each of the last two years, where I was out just digging pits, looking for stability data, snowpack data, and we did our pits, got our results. And as we were leaving the pit site, got these huge collapses, just big woomph. And uh, the first time I was with a partner who's fairly new to snowmobiling and being in the backcountry, and she was super psyched to be there learning and 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 digging pits and stuff. And when that collapse happened, I was super excited. I was like, wow, that is like so cool just being an avalanche nerd. I was like, we just got we were kind of dealing with a bit of a deep slab problem at the time or transitioning into it where we we'd actually just had a warning due to this basal persistent weak layer and i it was hard to get it's deep enough that it was hard to get clearly unstable test results on but then so i was getting a mixed results but then got this collapse and it was like all right we like it's obviously unstable the (laughs) we weren't wrong about having a warning and the person i was with was like are we okay i was like yeah, no yeah we're good it's low angle um, and then this thinking back on that is like, we were right around the 30, 30, just under 32 degrees and, and, uh, and then I had a similar situation last year with another forecaster where we were digging pits. And then as we were leaving, walking above our pit, and this was a little bit smaller slope, but we were above some trees and there was this big drift that collapsed and lumped that we had just basically been standing underneath for the last 30 minutes or so. And again, it didn't slide and it's like, yeah, we're on, we know our slope angles, right? And just prompted this, this thought of like, do I really know my slope angles that good? Cause they were close enough. Like it wasn't a 20 degree slope. It was like 28 to 30 and, um, it was just close enough that like me, I, I don't know if I'm really that good. Like, <laughs> and in hindsight, it's easy for me to tell myself that, oh yeah, no, I'm good. Like. I knew it was low angle slope that's why I chose to dig there but it also it was enough it was close enough to make me think like maybe I should choose a little bit lower slope angle sometimes
1: sure (laughs) Um, well maybe you could expand a little (laughs) bit on this Alex about like how you determine a good location to dig a snow pit you gather a lot of obs for the Mm -hmm. avalanche center what's the thought process that you go through
0: yeah um Well, of course, you start with the basics of you want a safe spot and somewhere that's representative of the snowpack that we care about. So for forecasting, we're not on a slope by slope basis. We're more forecasting for a mountain range or a region. So we can go back to the same spots a lot and get data, you know, and obviously not dig on our old pit, but near it and get pretty comparable data over the course of the season to see things, how, how things are evolving. Um, and a lot of our regular spots are just inherently safer. Uh, but then we're also always looking for new spots as we're out there to make sure other, you know, a random slope here is somewhat comparable to like our our normal quote unquote study plots or something. Um, so yeah, I think the main thing is safety and that's why I say slope angle because you want it, a low angle slope is gonna be safe if it's not connected to something steeper above or adjacent that's going to pull you off or, or hit you. Um, Do you feel like you can get good data from a flat location? Absolutely. Um, we've never had an issue with it. And then there's some the good research that Carl Berklin and, and Doug Chabot helped with a bit that they collected this data from a, the same snowpack over multiple slope angles you know, on a slope that goes from forty five degrees and lessens to zero. And that structure stays essentially the same over that over those slope angles and and they got essentially the same stability test results. With compression tests, their number of taps only changed by a couple. And with then same with extended column test results, they were not getting a, a significant difference in the number of hits to make it collapse. And then one thing we preach a lot is to use the extended column test and just look for propagation or not. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, those taps do make a difference if it propagates on two versus 28. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference. But at a basic level, we do tell people like, if you're getting propagation, if you don't, yeah, if, if that's all your data, you probably shouldn't skip because that's showing you it's unstable. Um, but yeah, absolutely. We've I've never had an issue. Uh, Feeling like slope angle is affecting my stability or or structure mm-hmm. results. Sure,
1: and that's and I should I guess clarify that we want to if we were doing that we want to make sure that we're out of any runouts of of adjacent or paths that are above us right. Just because yeah. you're in the flats <laughs> doesn't mean that you're in a safe location if there's a yeah. looming avalanche path above you. Um, I think that goes without saying, but it's always always worth
0: (laughs) emphasizing there yeah Um, I would say just add that it's easier said than done (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, yeah we we do play it really safe but it it can be challenging to sometimes you dig a pit and and it doesn't seem right so you gotta find somewhere else and you might waste a little bit of time and you know like the best spot's gonna be right on the edge of that slope you want to ski but you, you might be pushing it a little too close if you're assessing that stability Um, and then sometimes i will say like especially recreationally or like if i'm about to ski something and i'm doing that last check i might be on i might be digging somewhere that's a little bit steeper it's like i'm about to ski it anyway i already have all this data it's like Mm -hmm. that's that's put put me on top of this slope (laughs) right like i I feel good about skiing it without Mm -hmm. digging a pit but i'm going to dig just to make sure and then i might be a little closer to that. I might be an avalanche train while I'm digging, but of course have a spotter in that case. And um, so, Otherwise it's usually trying to be in safe spots.
1: <laughs> right. So Alex, are you saying that you use stability tests to make
0: decisions whether to ski something? That is a tricky question. I think I, I use them to decide not to ski something is <laughs> yeah. if a lot of times, When I'm about to ski something, I would probably do ski it regardless of doing a stability test. But if I dig and get an unstable result that's on a a concerning unstable result, (laughs) um, then that's it. I won't ski it. Um, I think that's that seems like a great way to approach it. But I certainly don't, that's not the only data, and I've never. I'm never looking for stable results to ski something. If there's other avalanche activity, if the danger is moderate for a persistent weak layer or higher or or considerable for that slope, um, I shouldn't be trying to convince myself that a slope is stable. And that just leads me into, it's not just stability tests. If, If you're out there on a blanket considerable day and you start in the morning and your mindset is, or your mindset, your terrain selection is low angle slopes, uh, avoiding runout zones. Nothing should be able to change your mind from that. You shouldn't be looking for stable data. You shouldn't be saying, oh, we haven't seen avalanches. We haven't gotten collapsing and cracking. I think we're okay now. I think just just be okay that day to stick with that conservative plan and then Tomorrow is when you can say, "All right, yesterday we didn't see avalanches. Yesterday we didn't see collapsing and cracking. It didn't snow and it didn't blow overnight. Now the danger is moderate. Maybe it's it, now we can step out into a little bit steeper terrain." And uh, our accident reports don't don't analyze human factors a lot, but I think just from over the years of talking to people and looking at accidents and stuff, I think that's where we make a lot of mistakes. And personally, I've done it too. Like it's just, it's hard, you're out there on a powder day and it's snowing and danger's considerable. And one reason you don't see avalanches is because it's snowing and you can't see anything. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the human mind is so powerful that something in there just starts to add up that like, actually maybe we're okay to go ski some powder. And you start to, you do a few low angle laps and you're not, and everything feels good. And then the next thing you know, you're skiing that avalanche chute. Standing at the bottom, of it filming your buddy, and and then you get home and you say, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Nothing bad happened, but mm-hmm. now that I look back on it, something tricked me into <laughs> pushing out when I shouldn't have.
1: Well, it certainly does take some mental and social <laughs> discipline, doesn't it? Um, well, Alex, thanks for sitting down with me today and and recounting some stories and talking about your 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 graduate degree research and and all that great stuff i think there's some great nuggets in there of of um, advice for recreational and and professional skiers and riders alike so thanks for giving us a glimpse into what you do
0: absolutely yeah happy to be on the podcast and glad to glad to meet you (laughs) all right cheers man
1: I sure do hope that you enjoyed that interview with Alex. I know that I did. Thanks again, Alex. Our artwork, of course, was created by Mike T. You man, T. Music on today's episode was performed by Ketza. In the beginning, we heard the track Rock Garden. And bringing us out of the hour is Mr. Trumpet. These tracks were made possible through the permission of the artist, if you want to check out more of Ketza's work, you can go to www.ketza.uk. Check out our website, tripledub.theavalanchehour.com. You can find bios of contributors, links to past episodes, as well, to, as well as a little swag store. Get your ski straps, koozies, hats. Support the show. If you could, and if you would, it would be great if you gave us a review give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on if you're enjoying it. If you're not enjoying it and you want to send me some feedback you can find a link from my website to get in touch with me and I value all feedback we are taking contributions of, of stories for season 5 starting to collect stories or ideas for shows so if you have an idea for a show and you want to reach out feel free to reach out and we'll do what we can to make that episode happen with, with somebody that you want to have on the show or, or just a topic that you want us to dive into a little bit more. Um, so reach out, join the conversation. If you're into the whole social media thing, give us a follow. We are on Instagram and Facebook at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Whatever you do, do it nicely. Cheers.